0: We are going to be continuing our study in the prophet Isaiah. We've been out of Isaiah the last couple of weeks. Thankful for Matt and Jono preaching. Prior to that, we had worked our way all the way through the Emmanuel prophecies. The Son will be given to us, ending in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. We're going to be picking up where we left off in chapter 9. And so if you have your Bibles, you can open up there. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of those Bibles in the pew backs around you. If you need to elbow your neighbor to grab one, go ahead and do that. Isaiah will be right dead smack in the middle of your Bible. You'll see his name right there. Uh, if you're new to handling a Bible, you look at it, you see all these numbers everywhere. The, the big numbers are the chapters. The small numbers are the verses. We're going to be in big number, chapter 9. And we're going to begin in verse 8. That's where Joshua began reading today. I don't know how many of you have ever heard the name Miroslav Volf. He's a Christian theologian from Croatia. And for many years he rejected the concept of God's wrath. He thought the idea of an angry God was essentially barbaric, completely unworthy of a God of love. But then, as some of you may remember, his country of Croatia experienced a brutal war. People committed unspeakable atrocities against their neighbors and against their countrymen. In one of his books, he writes this, my last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I came. And according to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century, where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in grandfatherly fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrators' basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? And though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love, he concludes. God is wrathful because God is love. That is what Isaiah 9 and 10 are about. Let me give you a little context as we head into it. We saw in chapters 1 through 5 essentially an introduction to the book of Isaiah. Here we're introduced to Jerusalem's sin, Judah's sin. They're used synonymously, Judah and Jerusalem. And we see God's intention to make Jerusalem, sinful Jerusalem, into a faithful city. He's going to make them into a new Jerusalem. Well, in chapter 6, the question lingers. How is all of this going to happen? How is God going to take sinful Jerusalem and turn him into a new city? Sinful Jerusalem will become God's faithful city, we discover in chapter 6, when a faithful remnant, Isaiah calls them a stump, shares in Isaiah's experience of being humbled and purified by the grace of a holy, holy, holy God. In the chapters that follow, chapters 7, 8, and 9, God makes a promise to this faithful remnant, saying that one day a just and a righteous king who will be unlike anything that you expect. He'll be a child born among you, and yet he will be Emmanuel, God with you. He will reign over you with an everlasting rule, and he will be a king unlike any king that you've previously been under, especially wicked kings like Ahaz. And he concludes in chapter 9, verse 7, saying that this king of the increase of his government and of peace, there's not going to be any end. It's going to be forever and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That's where we left off. How is God going to make a sinful people into a new people? How is this holy, holy, holy God going to make for himself a new and Holy and purified people, and how is he going to bring them ultimately under the sovereign lordship of this Emmanuel, this king? Well, now we're going to go back to the present day in Isaiah's prophecy. Isaiah 9 7 leaves us off on what God promised to do for the future, but here in Isaiah 9 and Isaiah 10, in the meantime, We see that God is going to judge Judah for relying on Assyria instead of God. He's going to end up using Assyria to judge Israel. And then he's going to end up judging Assyria for coming against Israel. There's going to be judgment all around. And then in chapter 11, we're going to see, or actually at the end of chapter 10, we're going to see a faithful remnant from Israel is going to be preserved. And that remnant is going to be united not only with Judah, but in chapter 11, from people with every nation under the righteous rule of the Messiah. And then in chapter 12 ends the first big section of Isaiah. We see that this remnant made up of, tri- of every tongue and tribe and people and nation, along with this remnant from Israel united to Judah, that they are all together worshiping and enjoying God in the new Jerusalem. So the riddle in the first five verses of Isaiah will be solved by the time we get to Isaiah 12. And then Isaiah is going to continue to meet that out over the course of his book. Well, today we're going to be in Isaiah 9 and 10 because before we can get to the glorious redemption of a new Jerusalem, we have to deal with the reality of God's wrath. And so Isaiah wants Judah to know that's who he's preaching to. He's going to be preaching to Judah about Israel, that is the kingdom to the north of them, that's seeking to overthrow them and replace Ahaz with a puppet king. He wants them to know that God is going to reduce Israel to a remnant by using Assyria to judge their pride. And then he's going to restore a remnant to the land by judging Assyria. And when we think about that for a moment, we translate that to today, it leaves us with this big idea. And it's essentially my sermon in a sentence. That our sin must be judged by God if we're to be restored to his fellowship and possess His inheritance. Our sin must be judged by God if we are to be restored to His fellowship and to possess His inheritance. This is what we're going to see in the second half of Isaiah chapter 9, all the way through the end of chapter 10. Really, there's two sections here. Beginning in verse 8 of chapter 9, you might mark that there. Beginning with, the Lord has sent a word. Starting there, going all the way through verse 4 at the end of chapter 10 is our first section. And we might label this section unrelenting wrath. And we see that in a refrain four times we see repeated in this section. For all of this, his anger has not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. We see it in verse 12. We see it again in verse 17, again in 21 and concludes in verse four. And every single one of those refrains concludes a judgment four in total that God is bringing against Israel for their rebellion. And then we have a new section beginning in verse 5, all the way through the end of the chapter. And it's following up this theme of unrelenting wrath with a new theme, and that is undeserved mercy. So if our first section is unrelenting wrath, then our second section beginning in chapter 10, verse 5, through the end of chapter 10, is undeserved mercy. And we'll flesh that out when we get there. But before we dive into this text, we have to quickly both identify and deal with this refrain that I've mentioned in verse 12, 17, 21, and chapter 10, verse 4. For all of this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. That word for anger is also translated wrath. Elsewhere, the word in Hebrew speaks about a person's nose. It's the idea of steam coming out of a nose of, of, of unlimited anger. So some of you, if you have toddlers, you know exactly what I'm talking about. They furrow their brow Or if you're one who liked to rough it up on the playground growing up, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's this idea that anger has so boiled over that it's steaming out of your nose. You're breathing heavily. And that's the image that Isaiah wants Judah to see as God is coming against Israel. Not because God actually has a nose. He's pure spirit. But God uses anthropomorphic, that is, man-like forms of language to speak to us in like toddler language, to give us language that we understand about who he is and how he operates. So here he's getting down to his level and saying, God is angry, it's boiling over, and he is huffing and puffing like a bull staring at red. That's what he means there. But what is then the wrath of God? Is it just... A resentful and a spiteful spontaneous response, perhaps even unpredictable. Well, we know that God, from elsewhere in the Bible, is immutable, and that any of His other attributes cannot contradict the fact that He is unchanging. And when I say that, the reason that's important is because God doesn't have fits of emotions the way that we do. He doesn't respond to us and to His creation on a whim like that. He doesn't throw fits. His response to sin is rooted in his immutable, that is, unchanging character. And so when we think about his wrath, we can't think about it like an emotional tantrum against sin. That would be contrary to the very nature of God. But what is the wrath of God? If you want to work a definition, you might put it this way it's God's wrath in his active, resolute opposition to all evil. It is God's active, resolute opposition to all evil. And we need to understand that God doesn't operate in some of his attributes some of the time and in other parts of his attributes other parts of the time. Wherever God is, all of his attributes are there. That means that God's wrath never leaves behind God's love because God's love can never make peace with our evil. So we go back to the statement that Miroslav Wolf said at the end of his quote that God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. His love cannot endure and cannot make peace with our evil. He is committed to wiping out all those who oppose him and his people. And he is committed to wiping out every ounce of evil that dwells within the hearts of his own people so that they would be purified for his own glory. His love and his wrath are inseparable. They go together. Well, this is what we need to keep in mind because as you notice, this is the refrain. It's kind of like the chorus in Isaiah's song that he keeps going back to over and over again here in chapter 9. That for all of this, God's anger has not turned away. And his hand is stretched out still. That is a frightening chorus. Well, each one of these phrases concludes a judgment against Israel from God. We see in verse 8, that the Lord has sent a word against Jacob. He has sent prophets to preach to them and to warn them. And yet over the centuries, they have not relented and turned back to God. And so we see then that in verses 10 through 12, Syrians and Philistines, they are tearing down buildings. They're ripping apart forests. But yet even in all of this, we see that Ephraim, that is the northern kingdom, is saying in pride and the arrogance of heart, yeah, the bricks have fallen, but we're going to build it with even better stones. Yeah, they might, have been, they might have cut down the sycamores, but we're going to build back cedars in their place. In other words, yeah, things may have been bad, but not only have we prevailed, we're going to build it back bigger and better all on our own. But they're not going to rely on God. So God confronts them and he says that because of this, because of this pride, because of this arrogance, he is going to send against them the adversaries of Razin, that is the Assyrians. Now the Assyrians at the time, they were the third Reich of the day, sweeping through Gaza and all of the surrounding areas gobbling up kingdoms wherever they could. And it was a centuries-old campaign of world domination, of brutal slaughter. And God says, this is who I'm going to raise up against Israel. That I sent these lightweights against them to confront them so that they would turn to me and instead, they've only turned into themselves and they've doubled down. And now I'm going to send the big boys. I like watching boxing. Last night was heavyweight championship bout between two boxers. We don't even need to talk about. But the guy who won last night knocked out his opponent in the seventh round. And this guy has... Arguably, maybe historically, the greatest right hand in heavyweight boxing. He has fought 43 times and he's knocked out 42 opponents. And there's a phrase, what he does, in every single one of his hits, he, he throws a jab and then he immediately follows with a straight right. And in boxing, the phrase is, blind him with the jab, put him to sleep with the right. That's exactly what we see happening here. That God, because of Israel's Arrogance has blinded them with the Syrians and the Philistines, and yet they've still refused to turn to God, and He's about to put them to sleep with a right hand called Assyria. They will not turn. But this has been the way that God has always dealt with His people that when He confronts them, that when God brings judgment, His people are meant to examine themselves, to look at their hearts and their lives and to find out where and how they have in fact sinned against God and to turn. You can go home this afternoon and take about an hour and read through much of the book of Judges. This is the cycle that Israel sins against God. God sends oppression their way. They cry out to God. God delivers them through a judge and then they live in peace for a time until they rebel against God again and the whole cycle repeats itself. God sends these adversaries and these oppressions as an act of his grace to his people so that they would no longer depend on themselves and of their own wisdom and of their own might, but rather they would humble themselves and turn to him. But Israel won't do that. For us James, as New Testament believers, James says this, and it's just as applicable. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. And purify your hearts, you double minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. There is nothing in your life that God does not have sovereign control and purposes for. He is the author of every good thing in your life, and He is the author of every bad, painful thing that turns to good in your life. It all comes from him and it all serves his purposes. So there is nothing painful in your life that has not come from the hand of God and does not intend intend to cause you and I to stop in our tracks, to examine ourselves, our hearts, and our lives, and to turn in humility and in trust on him and on his word and on his promises. It's a loving father turning wayward children back to him time and again. That he loves us too much to give us more of the world. No, God sends us Syrians and he sends us Philistines so that we would be weaned off of ourselves and off of the world and we would be brought back to him in humility and trust. Because that's where our greatest good lies. But Israel doesn't believe God. In fact, we see in verse 13 that the people did not turn to him And they did not inquire of the Lord of hosts. No, they turned instead to leaders. Can it be the case ever that people who claim to be followers of the one true God reject the word of the one true God and look to government leaders instead for their salvation? This is nothing new. And yet that's exactly what we see here. That they are not turning to the true savior, the one who can redeem them and restore them. No, they're turning to substitute saviors. And so what does the Lord do? Well, he cuts them off. He cuts off from Israel, both the head and the tail. That is the elder and the honored man. All of the leadership he is wiping out. In fact, we see in the kingdom of Israel, that is the northern kingdom from Jeroboam onward. Jeroboam was one of the sons of, of Solomon He led to the split in the kingdom, Judah to the south, Israel to the north, Jeroboam is the northern king, and he, with every single king that followed, of every single one, it was said, and they did evil in the sight of the Lord, with the exception of Jehu, who did a little bit good, but he still gave himself to idolatry. Every single one of their leaders did evil in the sight of the Lord, so they had a choice, I'm trying to get your attention. I'm trying to get you back to me. Look at me. Look at my word. And they turn back to their wicked kings time and again. So God takes out the kings. I am going to take your crutches out from under you. Can it ever be the case that God, when we are prone to trust in things other than him for security, for sustenance, that he knocks those things right out from under us? So that in a sense, chaos and anarchy comes into our life so that we would be convinced that we can't do this on our own and that these substitute saviors are unworthy of our trust so that we would rely on him alone. And yet Israel once again will not turn. And for all of this, his anger does not turn away and his hand is stretched out still. Judgment is coming. Well, in verse 18, we've not only seen the first judgment, that is that God confronts the proud. We've not only seen the second judgment, that is God removes the leaders, but now we see a third judgment in verses 18 to 21, and that is that God permits self-destruction. If you notice in verse 18, sin is spreading. Paul uses an image of sin that it is like yeast, just a little bit of it, put it a little bit in the dough, and it fills up the whole dough. It's like cancer infecting an entire body. And in verse 19, we see that part of this is because of the wrath of the Lord is responsible. How is the wrath of the Lord responsible ultimately for this sin spreading? Well, the Apostle Paul picks up on, that, on this idea in Romans chapter 1. You may remember in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, it says... The, That the wrath of God is being revealed upon all mankind. Why? Well, they knew who God was, but they suppressed the knowledge of God. And in suppressing the knowledge of God, they had given them over to various kinds of wickedness. How is it that God in his judgment revealed his wrath against their wickedness? Answer, he withdrew his restraining grace and he let their sinful desires just go as far as they wanted it to go. That was the judgment of God on mankind. And that's exactly what we see here. That in the wrath of God, what we see is his restraining grace has been withheld. This good has been withheld. And he says, listen, if you want to choose sin over me, I'm going to let your sin carry itself out to its logical consequence. And what you see in verses 19 and 20 and 21 is self-interest leading to self-destruction. They are literally devouring one another. It's interesting because we see Manasseh devouring Ephraim, Ephraim devouring Manasseh. These are the sons, you remember of who? Of Joseph. And so it seems that that fratricide, either physically or spiritually, is never far from the house of Joseph. That this is his legacy. That Manasseh, they're devouring one another. But lest we think that This is something that only an ancient people might fall prey to. We need to remember the Apostle Paul at the end of his section on on putting to death the works of the flesh and walking in the Spirit says this, but if you bite and devour one another, oh, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Self-interest can so easily take root that we think that our interests are more important than anybody else's interest. James says in James chapter four, why are there quarrels and fights among you? Is it not because you desire and you do not have? You're willing to murder one another. Some commentators think that he's talking literally murder. Others, and I think this is more likely, are tearing one another down through gossip and slander, through the destruction of reputations, through the defrauding of of others and their money, of the rich defrauding the poor, and so on and so forth. He says you murder one another, all because you don't get what you want. That's why Jesus says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but in humility of mind consider others more important than yourselves. Do not merely look after your own interests, but after the interest of others. Have this attitude in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. What we see in verses 18 to 21 and what we see in our own hearts and lives from time to time is anti-Christ. It is self-interest, no longer restrained by God's grace, that leads to self-destruction. And as self-destruction is sweeping through the land, we see finally in this fourth judgment that self-preservation kicks in and the rich are now oppressing the poor. Those who have are taking advantage of those who have not. You better get what you need because pain is coming. It says here that they turn aside the needy from justice, verse 2 in chapter 10. They rob the poor of my people of their right. The widows may be their spoil, that they would make the fatherless their prey. It's easy pickings. How are you going to last in the day of judgment with all this war going around, with all this oppression, with all this pain, with all this uncertainty? How are you going to stabilize yourself? Will you go after the weakest links in the herd? And God says, you make me sick that you would do that. What will you do, he says, on the day of punishment? In the ruin that will come from afar, he's speaking about Assyria, to whom you will flee for help. And where will you leave your wealth, all this wealth that you've gained unjustly? He says, you've got two options. There's only two ways you're going out. End of verse four. You can either crouch among the prisoners that be led away in captivity, or you can die. Those are your two options. Would you rather have the red pill or the blue pill? You can die or you can be taken captive. But there's no other options for you. My patience has run out. For all of this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. This is a humbling passage. Because I know that there may be some of you in here today that you're here Because your life feels like a train wreck. That it has been pain compounded on pain. Perhaps the consequences of other actions against you, but perhaps even the consequences of your own sinful actions in your own life. I think... God would have us know from Isaiah 9, would have you know that all of that is being used in the hand of a sovereign and loving God to get your attention. Stop trusting in yourself. Stop trusting in your wisdom. Stop walking in pride and in arrogance of heart and humble yourself. Before me, it is better to be humbled before God and exalted by Him than it is to party with the world and to be humbled by God. It's a hard lesson for many of us to learn, and it's one that God is committed to getting out of His people. So I don't know where some of you are at, perhaps some of you, you need to stop, like Israel needed to stop, and you need to take inventory. Are you trusting in your own wisdom and your own strength? Are you refusing to turn from God? Perhaps God has brought these things into your life. Nothing in your life falls apart from his hand to get your attention, to turn you around, and to bring you back to him. That you would turn to the one who strikes you and you would inquire of the Lord of hosts. Verse 13. But there's one question that remains for Israel, and for all of us. And you see that in verse 3. It says, What will you do on the day of punishment? To whom will you flee for help? All of these judgments that we see here, these four judgments, they're nothing compared with God's wrath against sinners in hell. And so in one sense, we see here and elsewhere, as I mentioned in Romans 1, that God's wrath has come, that it has in fact been revealed, but there is another sense in which God's wrath is coming. We see Paul writing to the Colossians chapter 3, therefore put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, because on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. It has come, but it is not fully come. That's why Nahum warns who can stand before his indignation, who can endure the heat of his anger. His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. He says, think of the hardest thing that you can think of, and he turns it into dust. You may remember in 2004, The tsunami that took out much of Asia was caused by an earthquake that some scientists said were the equivalent of a thousand atomic bombs going off at the same time. If a little sliver of the crust of a piece of God's creation can come with that kind of power, what kind of power? must the almighty, omnipotent creator have? John paints this in vivid color, In his revelation, he says, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful, everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Answer, nobody. Nobody. Those who are finally opposed to God in their sin, who will not turn to him, who are not unlike Israel in Isaiah 9 and 10, who love their sin more than they are willing to bow to a sovereign. John goes on in Revelation 14 to write that they will drink the wine of God's wrath. Poured out full strength into the cup of his anger and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of his holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. Notice that word, in the presence of the lamb. Hell is in separation from God. Hell is in the presence of the almighty, holy, holy, holy lamb who has been slain without any relief from his righteousness. It is to be fully confronted with the holiness of God without any of the protection from Christ. You remember time and again what people say when they, when they see even just, even just kind of a, a hidden sliver of vision, a theophany of God, you remember? They say, oh, then I'm going to die. Well, even then, the presence of God is veiled, but hell will be the unveiled presence of Christ in all of his glory without any of the, of the veiling and the protection of his grace. And that is Terrifying. Hide me in the rocks. Don't let him see me. But he sees everything. This is the God whom Isaiah is preaching about. That his anger will never be turned away and his hand will always be stretched out. Well Isaiah 9 and 10 teaches that, on, that, that only God can turn his wrath away. And the good news of the gospel is that God has provided a place for sinners to run and hide. And that place is Jesus. He's described two times in the New Testament as our propitiation. We see it in Romans 3 and we see it again in 1 John 2. And it's this idea of one who satisfies god's wrath, making it possible for forgiveness and reconciliation to occur. It's, an, it's temple language, of the shedding of the blood. Go back and listen to Johnno 's sermon from last week covers what we're talking about here. And the idea is captured in the image of Jesus in Gethsemane in Matthew 26, where he says, "If this cup cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. What cup is he talking about? On the cross, the wine of God's wrath was poured full strength into the cup of his anger. That's what we saw in Revelation 14. That's the cup that Jesus is talking about. And he says, if this cup can't pass for me, oh, I don't want to face that cup. But if this cup can't pass from me, then I'll drink it full. If that's your will for me. And so on the cross, the wine of God's wrath was poured full strength into the cup of his anger and Christ drank up every single drop in the place of every single sinner who had turned from sin and trust in Christ. What are you waiting for? If you're here and you've not yet trusted in Christ, what are you waiting for? God will not be patient forever. What is holding you back that you would not turn today and trust in Christ? That he would give you such a great offer of not just of all of God's wrath being absorbed in his atoning work on your behalf, but of all of his righteousness and all of his joy and all of his inheritance and everything that belongs to him now belongs to you and everything that once belonged to you, that is the very wrath of God against your sin, has been laid on him instead of you. Why wouldn't you want that? What keeps you from turning? Don't be like Israel. Don't be a fool. Trust in Christ. Because only in Christ is the anger of God turned away. And only in Christ does the hand that was once stretched out to us in judgment now stretches out to us as a father. Only in Christ. Well, we're going to see beginning in verse 5 all the way through the end of the chapter undeserved mercy. And we need it after that chapter, don't we? That's a big one. We're going to see a couple of things. We're going to see, first of all, God's agent brought low. That is that God dealing specifically with Assyria. And we're going to see secondly, in verses 20 to 26, God's remnant brought back. God has sent Assyria against Israel. He wants Judah to know He's called Israel godless, he's called Judah godless, godless in the same way that Assyria is godless, which is shocking if you're listening to Isaiah preach. He sends Assyria against Israel, Israel consumes, Assyria consumes Israel, and then they make their way down to Judah. And they make it all the way to the edge of Jerusalem before God and his sovereignty stops them. And all of that is according to the promise that we saw all the way back in Isaiah, chapter 8, you may remember that Israel is going it's going to rise the king of Assyria in all of his glory it's going to rise over its channels over all of its banks it's going to sweep into Judah like a flood it's going to overflow and pass on reaching even to the rock or reaching all the way to the neck in other words, Assyria is going to flood all the way up to the neck of Judah but it's not going to choke him out God's got further plans but notice of what we see to be true about Assyria. A couple of things. Beginning in verse 10, or rather verse 5 and 6. God says, woe to Assyria, the rod of whose anger? Of my anger. The staff in their hands is my fury. And against a godless nation, that is Israel and Judah, I send him. And against the people of my wrath, that is Israel and Judah, I command him. His anger is my anger. His fury is my fury. I'm the one that's sending him. I'm the one that's commanding him. And he's doing all of this until, verse 12, he has finished all of his work. God is sovereign over all of the nations. He is sovereign over everything that happens in his creation, and he uses all of it to accomplish his purposes. And you say, well, how is that then the case? How can Assyria possibly be held accountable if God is the one making them do it? And the answer we find is in verse 7. He does not so intend. His heart does not so think, speaking of the king of Assyria. But it is in his heart to destroy. We see a glimpse into the motives of Assyria. That he is freely deciding to destroy and to conquer, and God is wielding it in his sovereignty. Not being thwarted at all. By the free desire of the king of Assyria to operate according to his desires, and yet wielding all of those desires to accomplish his specific ends. And so he is wielding, verse 12, the arrogant heart of the king. And he sees the boastful look in his eyes. Verse 13, how is he boasting? He's saying, Listen, by the strength of my hand, I've done it. My wisdom, I have understanding. He says, I remove the boundaries of peoples and I plunder their treasures. I'm like a bull that brings down those who sit on thrones. My hand is found like a nest in the wealth of the people's and is As one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I've gathered them all up. And there's not one that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. In other words, I was unopposed. I can do whatever I want. And I can do it whenever I want to because nobody's bigger than me. Nobody's badder than me. I'm the most powerful force in all of the universe. And then God says in verse 15, shall the axe boast over him who Hews with it. There's nothing that Assyria has been able to do that I didn't let him do. He thinks he's the most powerful being in the universe? (laughs) Shall the ax boast over the one who hews it? shall Shall the pottery accuse the potter? Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it. As if a rod should wield him who lifts it. As if a staff should lift him who is not wood. He is just a tool in my hand to accomplish my purposes. And because of his arrogance in which he is freely acted out of. According to my sovereign purposes. I'm going to judge Assyria. Because he is all about his glory. And he doesn't give a rip about my glory. And so he is deserving of judgment in the same way that godless Israel deserves judgment and in the same way that godless Judah deserves judgment. None of them are about my glory. And so Assyria, we see at the end, verse 33, Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. And the great and height, speaking of Assyria, will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. The irony here is that the axe is about to get axed. But in the middle of all of this, of God's agent being brought low, God raises Assyria to come against Israel, against Israel down into Judah, and then he ends up judging not just Israel and Judah, but also judging Assyria. But in the midst of all of this, we see in verse 20 all the way to 27... Not only that God's agent is brought low, but that God's remnant is brought back. And we get a glimpse of God's grace in judgment. It's a glass of ice-cold water in a scorching hot desert of a passage. And that's what we see here. That in that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them. In other words, Israel or Assyria. But will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. Therefore, says the Lord God of hosts, O oh, my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike you with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in, for in a little while, my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed to their destruction. And the Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip as when he struck Midian at the rock in Oreb and his staff will be over the sea and he will lift it just as he did in Egypt. We see that word remnant mentioned three times in verse 20, 21, and 22. It's an important concept in the Old Testament that carries over into the New Testament. And we see that according to verse 22, That the people of Israel were to be as the sand of the sea. And that's pointing back to the promise that God made to Abraham. That indeed his physical descendants were as numerous as the sand of the sea. But only a remnant will return. Only a small number. Because he has decreed, at the end of verse 22, destruction. And it's not an unjust destruction. It is a righteous destruction. It's a destruction of the nation of Israel that is overflowing with righteousness. And this remnant will be marked, not by military might, not by mighty kings. It will be marked by humility. That they are the ones who in faith will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. In fact, this whole section is just, it's like, a, like the end of a fireworks show at 4th of July where everything just starts popping all at once. It's like a theological version of that All of the names that Isaiah, beginning in verse 16, attributes to this God who is bringing back this remnant. He is, verse 16, the Lord God of hosts. He is the light of Israel. He is the Holy One. He is the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, verse 20. And He is the mighty God, verse 21. And then three more times, the Lord God of hosts, 23. The Lord God of hosts, verse 24. And in verse 26, the Lord of hosts. That is the Lord of armies. The Lord that commands armies that are the armies of the armies. In other words, it speaks to his almighty sovereignty and of the inability of kings and nations to ever come against him. That he laughs, Psalm chapter 2, in derision against them and against all of their schemes. He sits in the heavens and he laughs because he says, Isaiah chapter 40, what are the nations but a drop in the bucket to me? What are the most powerful kings but insignificant insects to me? I'm the Lord of hosts. I'm the Lord of armies. And I'm the one that's going to save my people. And that's exactly what he does. That a remnant returns to the mighty God and they lean on him. this concept is going to be really, really important when you get to the New Testament. Because a question remains coming out of the Old Testament, and it's this. If the Jews are the people of God, and Jesus is the Messiah, why do only some Jews believe in Jesus? Paul answers that question in Romans chapter 9. Go there with me. Go to your right to the New Testament, Romans chapter 9. We're not going to look at the whole passage. We're just going to go to the very end, Romans chapter 9. Romans 9 is specifically talking about God's electing grace, his sovereignty in electing some, and then choosing others according to his purpose to be used as vessels of destruction, all for his glory. Ultimately, not a super comfortable passage for many of us, not one that we can easily reconcile, but one that is completely centered upon God's sovereign grace and centered upon his glory. And in the end, when people ask Paul, well, isn't this kind of unjust of God to do this? And he goes, well, who are you? Does the potter have no right over the clay to make the same lump one vessel of honorable use and another for dishonorable use? In other words, can't the potter do whatever he wants with the clay? That's the creator's prerogative. You don't need to know Greek to know the plain meaning of that passage. But notice what happens. He ends up quoting Hosea in verse 25. And he's talking about these people who are his people, but but they're not really his people. There's, There's a different people that are his people. And then in verse 27, look at this. Isaiah cries out. Paul here is crying out with Isaiah. And he says, Isaiah cries out. He uses the present tense. Why is Isaiah dead for centuries crying out in the present tense? Because Paul is crying out just as Isaiah cries out. And he's crying out the exact same message. In other words, he's crying out in the spirit of Isaiah concerning Israel. And then look at what Paul preaches. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. Where did that come from? Isaiah chapter 10. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. So if the Jews are the people of God and Jesus is the Messiah, why do only some Jews believe in Jesus? Well, I want you to notice what Paul does here in verse 27. He quotes Isaiah chapter 10, verse 21, and he says, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them shall be saved. Whoa, stop. That's not what Isaiah said. That's not what you find in the Hebrew Bible, and that's not what you find in the Septuagint. You find that an a remnant will return. You don't find that a remnant will be saved. So is Paul saying that Isaiah was wrong? What is Paul doing here? Paul is interpreting Isaiah's words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in light of Jesus Christ. And he is giving Isaiah's words their fullest and their truest meaning in a way that Isaiah in his day could not fully understand. Paul isn't changing the meaning of Isaiah 10. He is giving the full meaning of Isaiah 10 in light of Christ that Israel's restoration to the land from exile, which is what Isaiah was looking forward to, serves merely as a type. It's not the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises. It is a type. It's a shadow of a greater fulfillment yet to come. That according to Paul, this type is not fulfilled in physical Israel. Remember, they have been destroyed by God. There's only a remnant of Israel, of this physical descendants of Abraham that now remain that he calls his people. That's the Hosea passage just above. And according to Paul, this type is fulfilled, not in physical Israel, but in the true Israel. That's us. It's the church. And the hope of the true Israel is not the possession of a piece of land by our participation in an old covenant. Our hope is the possession of an even better inheritance by our our participation in a new covenant that has been based on even better promises in Christ. And so when we, now when we come to this table, we don't drink from a cup of judgment, but we drink from a cup of fellowship. Fellowship with God and fellowship with a remnant from Israel and a remnant from Judah that includes brothers and sisters from every nation on earth, of a new people, of a new Jerusalem, of a new and better Israel that has been filled and populated under its head, which is Christ, under new and better promises in the new covenant. Oh, if only Isaiah could have seen what Paul knew in light of Christ. That's why he changes it. No, it's not merely that they're getting back to the land. That was just a three-dimensional prophecy of a better work that God was going to do in Jesus. And that is that he is saving for himself a people of all nations to be a new Jerusalem and a new creation to be his people. And he will be their God. And one day he will return and they will behold him face to face. That's what Isaiah 10 is looking forward to. That for every single sinner who would repent and trust in Christ is united to Christ and becomes a member of the true Israel. No longer bound to the old covenant, but a member of a new covenant based on better promises in Christ. And those promises say that God's hand will never once again come against you. And his anger has been completely satisfied and extinguished against your sin once and for all in Christ because of his blood. This is driving me crazy. (laughs) And it means, it means that you and I, though we be in exile for a time here, and we sojourn in a land that is not our home, one day we're going home. And until then, just like we sang, We will wait for him. We will wait. Because he's been so good to us in Christ. Oh, help us. By God's grace, let us not be as Israel and Judah was. To turn from his word. To turn from this God who has been so great to redeem us. Oh, but that we would enjoy and delight in him and in one another according to the promises that we enjoy in Christ as a remnant who has been saved. (laughs) That's incredible. You're here today as a member of the new Israel because God has been sovereignly and meticulously working even through his judgments over centuries and centuries to save Mike Campbell, to save George Stone, To save men and women and children from every tribe, tongue, and nation. To be a new city, a faithful city. To be a new Jerusalem for his glory. Oh, that's our destiny.